And one of the things that we're going to see in the book of Nahum is we, if you haven't turned there, or if you left it there when Nate was reading, we're going to see something unique today, and that is that God loves and defends Israel. And you're like, so what? I'm not Israel. I mean, right? We're being honest with ourselves. We're like, well, how does that apply to me? Here's the thing. The same way that he loves and defends Israel is the same way he loves and defends you because that's who he is by character. That's what we need to take away this morning. This is what we need to come away with. One of the other things that's really cool, the next four weeks, we're going to be going through finishing the book of Nahum. What you are going to see is a prophetic newspaper. Now, prophetic and newspaper should never go into the same sentence. That's when you hear someone say that, normally you're like, okay, lock this guy up. He's a nut job, right? Prophetic newspaper. This means that God can see the future that he can write about the future just as if he's writing about the past. That's how awesome your God is. We take for granted the fact that God knows the end from the beginning, that he's before time and he will live forever, that he is that kind of God. And we see that in the book of Nahum. See, newspapers typically report what? What already happened. Unless you're fake news, right? And we won't go there. You report what's already happened. You don't predict what's going to happen. That's not a newspaper, right? This is what we're going to read, Nahum. This is a prophetic newspaper. God is writing the future as if it's already happened. In chapters 2 and 3, we've been looking at the destruction of Nineveh. We're going to get more details now. It's, it's like Nahum has seen this happen, and he has, right? He's, he saw it in a vision. He saw exactly what's going to happen. He recorded it in detail. We're going to see that developed here in chapters two and three. This blew me away in seminary in some of my Hebrew courses. You'll, you go to the Hebrew Bible and sometimes the, the verses are off in the Hebrew Bible from the English Bible. Did you know that sometimes? Like you'll, this is a great example right here. Chapter one, verse 15 in the Hebrew Bible is actually chapter two, verse one. That's where chapter two starts. And so it's very fascinating because in chapter 1, verse 15, you've got this good news. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Why is that such an interesting start to chapter 2? Because it reveals what we're going to see in chapter 2, that God is going to personally execute judgment on the Assyrians because he loves Israel. This is good news for the nation of Judah. This is, this is why it's good news. And God has made promises to Israel contrary to popular belief that he intends still to fulfill. He's going to fulfill these promises to Israel. And if you think not, then we've got a bigger problem because now we've got a God who doesn't keep his promises. He's just like the rest of us. And I'm here to tell you, he's not like the rest of us. Praise God. He's not like the rest of us. He keeps his promises. He's going to keep his promises to Israel. He's faithful. He cannot lie by character. He doesn't even have the capability to lie via his character why should that comfort you? Because God has made some pretty incredible promises to you. And if he breaks his promises to Israel, who's to say he won't break his promises to you? See how we kind of come in on the back door here, just via the character of God, knowing that we can trust him. And so he establishes a precedent all throughout the Old Testament. He establishes a precedent. By the way, the book of Revelation, and sometimes we look at the book of Revelation, we're like, ooh, man, it's kind of scary out there. You know, I don't know what that's saying. Here's what it's saying. God knows the future. 
God is writing it for us so that we know that, that, that it's going to happen the way that he says it's going to happen. God is, it, it, things feel out of control sometimes in culture. Here's the good news. God has already put his pen down on the final chapter. He's not writing anymore. He's done. He knows where this thing's going. And so there's an encouragement to know that that's a God that we serve. What is going on in your life today that you and I need to be reminded of? God has got it under control. God wants your good. God is working together all things for your good. What's going on in your life that you need to be reminded of that? It's not that you read it one time. Has anybody ever read Romans 8, 28? Yeah, we read it. That's all you need, right? Just read it once and you got it. No, we need to be reminded of these things. And so Nahum is gonna do that a little bit for us this morning. Just remind us about who your God is. He loves Israel. He's a passionate defender of Israel. Now let's jump into chapter two. Nahum does this. He, he switches pronouns. So we want to kind of keep track. Who's he talking to? Who's he talking about? When does he switch? Here in verse one, I believe he's talking to the Assyrians, the city of Nineveh. And he says this, he who scatters has come up be, uh, before your face, man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power uh, mightily. And what we're going to see in the next two chapters is this progression, just like you would expect in any battle. He's going to start with fighting in the suburbs. He's going to start with the approach of these armies. Then he's going to get to where the city wall is breached. And then he's going to get into where the city is taken and the city is, is destroyed. He's going to walk us through this, uh, this process. And as a reminder, I said this in the introduction, but one of the things that's really cool about Nahum is he's, scholars believe he's the most descriptive Old Testament writer in the entire Old Testament. In other words, when he writes, you, your senses come alive. And this is how he writes. He's trying to, to bring it to life. Remember, he has seen all this. So he's writing it in such a way, very vivid. You're, you're going to see this, these details come out. And um, <clears throat> I brought this map up here to frustrate you because I knew you couldn't see it. <laughs> we, we need a bigger screen. But, it, but anyways, this is a map of the city of Nineveh. Here's what I want you to see as, I, as I'm kind of pointing up here with the laser pointer. This is the city walls, okay? You're going to see these little, maybe some of you can see it, these little squares all the way around. These are little towers and gates around the city walls to provide defense so they can look and see. And then over here, you see the Tigris River, and you see this, this offshoot of the Tigris River that was the Koser River. Now, the Koser River ran right into the city, okay? And this is very important as we start breaking this down. By the way, that whole area, scholars believe through archaeological finds, was about 1,800 acres, okay? To put that in perspective on how big this city is, how big the walls were. Remember, they were thick. Some of them were, I think, were like 50 feet thick, very high. They had watchtowers up there. All that said to say that in this time and day, this was the most fortified city probably in the world, okay? Along with the waterways that were around it that kind of protected them a little bit. But what God is going to say is to the Ninevites in very short order, it doesn't matter what you try to do. I'm coming after you. <laughs> it doesn't matter how fortified you are. You're going down. This is the whole book of Nahum. And so he starts this way and he says, he who scatters uh, has come up before your face. Scatter means to attack. There's this idea that there's a, an aggressor, uh, a military fight. There's somebody coming up against them right up in their face, right up into their city. They're taking the battle to them. Now, <clears throat> 
For the Assyrians, that was a little bit different because what did they do historically? They were always the aggressor. You know, and I've always told my kids, uh, although know that I mean this metaphorically, what do you do with the bully? You punch them in the face. You hit them first before they can hit you. Same in sports. You play a really good team, you come out and you come out aggressive so they don't know how to take that because they're usually the aggressor. Well, now the Assyrians are gonna get kicked in the teeth. They've never been kicked in the teeth like this before and God is predicting it's gonna happen. In fact, we know through history that there was a coalition of armies that came together against Nineveh. Uh, The Medes had tried it at some point. In fact, um, the coalition here was comprised, I, I put these people groups up there, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Sumerians, the Scythians. Um, this was the coalition of armies that eventually came against Nineveh and destroyed the city. This is what Nahum is seeing, is this, this coalition of armies. History tells us that the king of the Medes, his name was, Sia, I had to write this down, Cyaxerxes. He had actually attacked Nineveh in 614. Now you've got, some of you've got the sermon notebook, you can see that timeline. This king had actually attacked Nineveh in 614, but he was only successful in taking a couple of outposts in the suburbs. He was not successful in destroying the city. That's how fortified they were. So then he said, you know what? Back to the drawing board. I need more people. I need more armies. And so he puts together this coalition of armies led uh, also with the Babylonians. And then in 612, two years later, with Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar, he was leading the Babylonians at the time, they came in and destroyed the city. This is what Nahum is seeing, this coalition of forces scattering up, getting into their face, driving in to the city. This is what we're looking at. And here's what's mind-blowing. Nahum, by the way, if you're talking about something in the future, even we know in English, right, what, what tense do we typically use? We use the future tense. So that's going to happen in the future. Do you know that in the Hebrew, all through the book of Nahum, he uses a, what's, what's come to be called by scholars as a prophetic perfect, which, which means this, it hasn't happened yet, but he's talking about it as if it's already done. I mean, this is so incredible because when you think about that, if you were the nation of Judah, you're like, I love this. It's like God's calling a shot. He's going to get it done. Nobody's going to stand in his way. And I can trust in it just as much as if I'd seen it with my own eyes. And it was actually in the past. That's how sure this is. And so Nahum drives this throughout the book. Now, he, he then writes this, man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your mightily power, mighty power, your power mightily. By the way, great advice in a normal military campaign. Great advice. All these commands here. Uh, what's so interesting is the Lord gives these intense commands. There's four of them. You can, you can pick them up with the exclamation points there. Um, but he does it to draw out the intensity of the situation, but also the irony, the severity. Um, three of the four verbs, this won't mean anything to you, but I'll explain it. They're, they're in what's called the PL stem in the Hebrew. That's, that's an intensification. I can say, uh, you, in the Hebrew, you can use the word for kill. You can say, I killed that person. Or you could put it in the, B, the PL stem and it says, I violently murdered that person. Same word, just different stems. So there's some intensity here. It's, uh, it's intense. But what's really ironic about it is it's bitter irony. It's, it's subtle because he's like, yeah, do all the things that you normally do and oh, ha, 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 it ain't going to work. <laughs> it's kind of the idea. He's given them this advice. It's not going to work for them. Also, 
because they're doing their best to defend themselves, God is showing them that what they do will never be enough. Not only that, but he's calling their sh- his shot. Anybody who hears about this in the future is going to see Yahweh is all-powerful. Yahweh does what he says he's going to do. Nobody can defeat Yahweh. So he's putting it out there so that people can what? Look back and verify that he is a promise keeper. He does exactly what he says he's going to do. You know what's even more erotic? I showed you the map of the city. Uh, a previous king in, in Assyria, Sennacherib, he's a famous one in history. You'll see his name a lot in history. You'll see him in the Bible as well. He had actually spent six years in the city building an army that covered 40 acres. He had dedicated 40 acres to building up an armory to further fortify the city. Another king, Esarhaddon, he had enlarged uh, the armory by adding more chariots, wagons, horses, mules, bows, quivers, arrows, and similar equipment. The royal road inside the city had been expanded to 78 feet. Why? For ease of troop movement, to get chariots moving a little bit more simply. So it wasn't a tight road. They, couldn't, they weren't in a single file line. All of these things had already been prepared. And the point is this, two, two points. When God is for you, who can be against you? But when God's against you, it doesn't matter who's for you. And that's what the Assyrians are about to find out, the the exact opposite of what we see in Romans chapter 8. And so in verse 2, we see that God God is into Israel. You know, this is amazing. This is why this whole series is entitled God's Strange Work. Because at some point, like, I don't know about you, but I was in middle school, I was very insecure, probably like many of us, right? I don't, I don't know. There's not a lot of confident people in middle school. I mean, we act that way, but it's, it's hiding insecurity, right? And I just remember in middle school that if I liked a girl and I wanted to, I mean, what do you even do in middle school? You, you go out, right? I don't know what you do anymore. I mean, you go to a movie. So, but it was, there's something official in a middle school mind, at least in my mind, that, that I wanted to go out with a girl, well, you know what I would do because of my insecurity? I would try to find out if she liked me first. Because if she didn't like me, then I would never declare that I liked her. Now, I was trying to protect myself from any kind of hurt, right? And then so I would find out that she didn't like me. And my friends, if they would have asked me the day before, do you think so-and-so is pretty? I would have been like, oh, yeah. They asked me that day. I'm like, oh, no. Ugly as sin. Looks like a dog, right? But the day before, I would have been in love. But I found out she didn't like me, and thus I adjusted my feeling for her. You know, the awesome thing about God is he's not insecure that way. He loves Israel. And may I remind you that at this point, Israel has, has already split into two nations. The northern kingdom has been taken into captivity because they rejected God straight to his face. They worshiped other idols. He sent prophets to them. They rejected and killed the prophets. And so they were taken into captivity. God's strange work. Patience with his people, but at some point, judgment and discipline must fall. Now he's doing the same thing with Judah. He's taking out their biggest enemy, the Assyrians. He's giving them time to respond. And they are going to reject his prophets. They are going to reject his word. They are going to basically thumb their nose at God. And eventually he has to engage in his strange work again by sending them into exile. And I want you to notice a couple of things about verse two, because what it would do for the nation of Judah, verse 15, we kind of saw that God wants fellowship with them. 
He's like, hey, I'm gonna take care of your enemies. You keep your appointed feast. You keep your vows. Let's, let's start walking together again. Let's start enjoying each other again. I'm gonna take care of your biggest enemy, but I want you to respond in fellowship. And then notice what he says here, because it gives us more of an insight into God's heart for the nation of Judah. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. And I want you to notice two words there in this verse, and it's, it's the word for. I guess it's one word used twice, technically. So it's the word for. It's, it gives us the reasons for why God is, is taking on Nineveh. Why is he going to destroy Nineveh? And it's based on his love for Israel, and it's based on the fact that of the way they have been treating not only the northern kingdom, whom they had taken into exile, but even the way they had been treating the southern kingdom. They are, they are emptiers. They are ruiners of the vine. And we'll talk more about what that means. This verse reminds us of something we learned in chapter one. God's jealous of Israel. Now, we talked about how that's a positive characteristic. Jealousy springs from love because you're zealous for exclusivity in a relationship, thus you're jealous. I'm not talking about the jealous you know, boyfriend or girlfriend in our day that's like stalking you on social media. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about a purity of character as jealousy because it's tied to zealousness for a relationship. Jealousy from God springs from his love. That's the point. He is desiring to restore, to bring them back to an excellence that they once had. When was that? Well, excellence here means majesty, splendor, or glory. This was exactly what they had under the kingship of David and Solomon. They were the toast of the world at that time. Nobody messed with Israel. David and Solomon had wealth. There were people, there were kings and queens from other countries who would literally come to Jerusalem just to meet Solomon and to look at everything that he had done. They were so impressed by what their God had done for this nation. They were truly an excellent nation. And oh, by the way, if that nation is excellent in the mind of, of the people groups of that day, it meant that their God was awesome. It, it was literally, my dad can beat up your dad. Deal. And so if my God can beat up your God, my God can protect us, my God provides crops, my God provides riches, I'm in the sliver of the desert, and for some reason, my sliver is green and grows fruit, and right over there, it's desert, Something big's going on up and down this land. <laughs> Their God's pretty cool. And this is, this is what, what would happen if he restored the excellence of Israel. They were not experiencing that at this point in history. Why? Because they were rejecting God. They were disobeying God. Why did they go into Babylon for 70 years in 605, the deportation started? Because they had spent 70 years not observing the Sabbath year the seventh year, the, the year of Jubilee, every 49th year, they were supposed to give the land a rest. They weren't doing that because they were trusting in themselves. We can't go a whole year without planting crops. How are we going to eat? Oh, I don't know. Maybe trust the God that speaks things into existence that actually instructed you to do that. Maybe we should try that. They didn't even try it once. And so you see the rejection setting in. Excellence is what he wanted to restore. It's interesting and it could just be a literary device. But he uses, notice how in verse 2 he uses both Jacob and Israel. Now he's talking about the same people. I think what he might be doing, it could just be a literary device. He's mentioning it twice, um, which is very true. 
but he could be bringing out because what does Jacob mean by definition? It means deceiver. It could be he's bringing out the sinful aspects of, of that nation, whereas Israel brought out maybe the positive or the righteous aspects of the nation. He's restoring them to excellence. It could be that. It could just be a literary device. But again, this should have been good news for the nation of Judah. God had not turned his back on them. And again, we've talked about that before, but when God delays judgment on our enemies, what do we immediately think? God doesn't care about me. He's not hearing me. He doesn't listen to me. This isn't a big deal to him. I'm not even making his radar. That's not true. (laughs) We got to know that, that God knows what you're going through. God cares about what you're going through. A delay in justice doesn't mean that he either doesn't care or he's impotent and can't do anything about it. He can do stuff about it. Trust me, that's one of the things this book brings out. And then not only that, you know, as God shares this in verse two through the prophet Nahum, Israel gets a little glimpse into the heart of God. God cares. God has been hearing them. This is the reason he gives. He wants to destroy them to bring back the excellence. See, he's got their good in mind. Many, many Jews by this time may have thought God doesn't care about us and he doesn't want our good but he's expressing his heart to them. He's letting them in, if you will, behind the scenes. You know, unfortunately, history tells us that the nation of Judah did not learn her lesson. They didn't listen to their prophets the same way the northern kingdom of Israel did not. And so the nation of Judah, which is tragic, this is in your timeline, they are gonna be taken into captivity into Babylon less than 10 years after Nineveh is destroyed. Put that in your your brain and circle that around that's crazy. The, the very thing God was trying to do was to rid them of their enemy so that they could be in fellowship and enjoy their land and, re, and be restored to excellence and splendor. And they, and they blew it. They blew it through unbelief. They would not trust the Lord. And so they're taken into captivity. By the way, God will one day restore the excellence of Jacob in Israel. And he's going to do it in the millennial kingdom. But, it, but it's going to be tied to a national repentance where Israel changes their mind about everything that God has been saying as it relates to righteousness, and they are going to recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And it's on that day that the excellence to Israel is going to be restored. That's going to be happening when King Jesus sets up shop and throne in Jerusalem. And so we still look forward to that day and a fulfillment of promises. Promise. The second reason he gives here. Is, is more of a negative reason. This again goes to, to why God is angry. We saw that in chapter one. He's angry with the Assyrians. And it describes, this, this, this imagery describes what the Assyrians did to the northern kingdoms. Um, they, they did waste their great bodies. They destroyed them. But uh, this is one of the reasons the Lord must restore the excellence because it's been destroyed. One of the things you'll see in the Old Testament is a vine is a common figure for the nation of Israel. You see that in Isaiah We won't read it. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, you can kind of read about that. But the point is this, he is going to restore this nation. And the good news is, when is it going to happen? Well, it's going to happen. There's there's coming a a seven-year tribulation period, which is going to be truly hell on earth, like nothing anyone has ever seen before. And and toward the end of that tribulation period, the, the Antichrist, who will be on the earth at that time, is going to gather armies, and he's going to come against Israel. We kind of read about that in, in what's known as the seventh bold judgment, uh, the sixth and seventh bold judgment in the book of Revelation. He's going to come against Israel. And guess what? The same God 
who stepped in in time and space history and judged the Assyrians is the same God that's going to step into history again at that moment. And he's going to save the nation of Israel. And King Jesus is going to ride in on a white horse. And guess what the difference is going to be that day from this day that we're reading about? They're going to recognize him. The nation of Israel is going to say, oh, there he is. Look how Zechariah puts it. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they pierced. By the way, crucifixion, when this verse was recorded, was not even known in history. This is what, and why does that shock us? God knows what's going to happen. God knows the end from the beginning. And he says it right here. They're going to look on me whom they pierced. Did they pierce Jesus Christ on the cross? It's exactly what they did to him on the cross. They were, they were uh, in cahoots with the Romans who actually carried out the task. They pierced their Messiah. They killed their Messiah. They were used by the enemy to fulfill the very prophecy that they claimed they believed. It's tragic. But you know what the good news of that story? There's going to be a generation that one day they're going to see him coming and they're going to say, Lord, Yahweh, Jesus is Lord. I'm calling on him to save me. And they're going to do that at this point. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So one day the excellence of Jacob and the excellence of Israel will be restored, but it's going to be on that day in the future. The nation of Judah missed their opportunity here in the, in the 600s BC. They rejected God, so that did not happen. Now we're gonna go back now to Nahum because in, in verses three through four, he begins to describe in detail the destruction of Nineveh. He goes in detail describing the coalition of forces who were against them. Let's read verses three through four. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches Give us preparation, and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in, in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. Now, these two verses are going to reference those who scatter from verse 1. We're talking about the coalition of forces. He's talking about the Babylonians, the Medes, uh, the other that are involved in this coalition coming against the city. What it would look like. And what's really fascinating about this whole section is... When you look at the armies of this day, one of the things that they would wear often is red. They would clothe themselves in red. They would make their shields red. Everything was red. It was an intimidation factor. It was a psychological warfare. And when you saw a group of red people coming, what do you, imagine, what do you think of? Blood. <laughs> and probably my blood if it's a big army, right? Like, like I'm in trouble. And so there's this psychological warfare. In fact, history tells us that red was a favorite color of both the Medes and the Babylonians. Xenophon, which was an ancient historian, also wrote later of Persian armies under Cyrus wearing red. This was a way that they would uh, try to inflict at least mental and emotional terror on the way into the actual battle. Now, the shields of the soldiers in verse 3 are being made red. Um, that's in what, what we call in the Hebrew, the pu'al stem. It's passive. In other words, they didn't make them red. Something made it red. Something acted on the shield to make it red. Now, they could have 
overlaid it with red dyed leather. Sometimes they would do that. They would soak leather. They'd put it on their shield. So if someone shot a flaming arrow, it would put it out on the shield. They could have done that with red dyed leather, or it could have um, been covered in copper. And when the sun hit it, it looked red. So something made it red. So in addition to their red clothing, they've got these red shields. Again, all part of psychological warfare. The spears are brandished. Brandished means to made quiver. So when you think about, uh, you know, the old days, they're pulling swords out of their sheath and the, the sword's shaking a little bit, right? The idea is they've got them out and they're ready to use them. It's kind of the idea. So they, Nahum is seeing this. Their, their shields are red. Their, their spears are, are brandished and ready to be used. Uh, <clears throat> the chariots, this is really fascinating. They, they come with flaming torches they, they rage in the streets. They jostle one another. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. In fact, notice how the chariots are described in appearance as flaming torches twice here in verses three and four. They're, they're moving. They, they, they're probably taking in the reflection of the sun. So they, they kind of look like that. Anybody that's watched, um, don't raise your hand, but the Hunger Games, right? When, when Katniss Everdeen kind of rolls into that area and she's, you know, what is it? Woman on fire? Is that, anyways, that might be a song. <laughs> Anyways, but it looks like it's on fire, right? It looks like the chariot's on fire. And that's kind of what he's describing here. You know, one of the things that's interesting, I pulled this picture up. This was known as a, as a scythed, I might be pronouncing it wrong, scythed chariot. Um, they, were, they had steel blades protruding from their wheels. And so as the wheels ran and as the sun hit these blades, sometimes it would have the appearance of fire, especially when they were moving quickly. And then blades would do what? Well, is it another chariot, an enemy chariot might come alongside? They would just roll into it and the spike would, would take out their wheels, take out their spokes, maybe stab their horses, depending on where they, they were. So it was, it was an extra type of enemy, but this was um, in, in play in these days. It would have been a breathtaking sight to see many chariots running with what, with what appeared to be glow, possibly from the sun. Again, Nahum is, is vivid, right, in his description, seeing these things as he goes. Notice also the chariots rage in the streets, meaning they're mad, they're insane, they're furious, they're charging. You know, uh, I could just picture chariots, they're trying to cut each other off quickly to be the first ones, uh, you know, to the scene. And if you can't picture that, um, then just picture like going to the go-kart, you know, raceway. Uh, you ever been to the go-karts with, with a psychopath that thinks he's like, driving NASCAR that day? I mean, goodness sakes. I mean, I'm out, we're out there with little kids. I, I, I mean, guys will literally cut you off and run you off the road trying to win the go-kart race. And it's like, for what? For two seconds, their name's on the leaderboard, and then it goes away for the next race. I don't even get it. Or if that doesn't resonate, just go drive you know, up 85 into Atlanta. You'll know exactly what we're talking about. This is this raging, this, this aggressiveness, this cutting off. So, so again, Nahum's painting this picture for us, seeing what's coming against Nineveh. Uh, he also brings out the aggressiveness when, they, when he talks about jostling. It means they're, they're banging back and forth, again, trying to beat one another. And so it just describes the sheer number of these. Now, uh, if, you're, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know oftentimes that Israel tried to join themselves to other countries who had what? Lots of chariots. This was like the atomic bomb of the day, right? This was like the war machine that if you had more of these, you were the most intimidating army. And so what it's showing is this, this coalition of forces coming against Nineveh strong. They're bringing chariots. 
They're bringing the big boys to this, to this battle. And this is what Nahum is seeing. The fact that, again, he mentions, uh, you'll see that in, in verse four, he mentions broad roads, kind of leads us to believe, again, that he's talking about this approach to the city. He, we're, we're in the suburbs now. He's, he's looking at this, developing from the suburbs. We're gonna get to the gate and the wall here in a second, and then we're gonna get um, to the city here before too long. Running like lightning, again, they're, they're fast. He's just describing their fast. Now, it leads us well into verse five, because as these people see this group coming, Nineveh, the, the residents of Nineveh have a response. And, and it's, uh, verse 5 is going to kind of describe their response, which is it, it's stumbling, a defense. You know, have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night with, with a, just a shock, you know, and you're, you start, you try to run and you probably should just like get your bearings first before you start running. But sometimes you don't, you like run into the dresser and you're trying to get out of your bed so quickly. This is kind of what I picture here. They, they, the watchmen see this army coming and then they are scrambling to defend themselves, scrambling to get ready to, uh, for this defense. And so he remembers his nobles, verse five tells us, they stumble in their walk, they make haste to her walls and the defense is prepared. And so now he's talking about the Ninevites and he's talking about their frenzied, kind of harried response here to this aggression. Uh, the word stumble means to, to, well, exactly what you would think, stagger, fall. Uh, they make haste to do something quickly, something in a very hurried manner, which you can imagine. They see this, this army of chariots running their way. They're all dressed in red. They're, they're kind of psychologically intimidated. Uh, the, the battle's coming to their front doorstep. And the idea is that they were attempting to move quickly. They, they wanted to mount a defense. They were trying to be ready that when this army actually got to the city gates, they were going to be ready. And what, what would happen in those days when an army would come up to the city gates? The people up top would do what? Start throwing stuff down, shooting arrows, right? Taking them out there at the base of the wall. So they're getting ready. They're getting harried. They're getting prepared for this. And that's why this next phrase is so interesting when you look at verse 5, because I believe everything in verse five describes the Ninevites except that last phrase. And it just shows that in their stumbling and in their harried business, they couldn't get ready quick enough because the other people already had their defense prepared. And I'll tell you why I think that here. And so the the defense was prepared. I think it was referring to uh, a tool, a military tool called a mantelet. Uh, it was just a technical term. It was a large moving object. It was like a large moving shield. And so when soldiers would put a city under siege, they would roll this up and then they would stand underneath it. From what? Rocks and arrows. This is a, uh, an image of a mantelet. I don't know if this is the kind they use. They had something different. There was multiple images online. But understand, the, the point is this. No matter how quickly they respond, no matter if they see him coming, Everything is going to be going against them. Everything, the, the fact that they might have been able to take out soldiers, they can't now because their defense is in place before they could even get to them. So again, you see how all of this, it's just going to be the perfect storm. And then it just gets more interesting because in verse six, we read this, the gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. And so this, this actually, when you compare it to history, it's incredible. It's like, 
word for word that you're reading in Nahum with history because uh, this describes the event that allowed the attackers into the city. There was a, a manipulation of the water supplies. One of the things that Nineveh thought was their strength and the fact that they had water coming into the city, because what is the biggest thing a, a siege is trying to uh, produce? It's trying to produce starvation and a lack of water, right? And that's usually when cities give up. This is why it's so tragic. And in one of the sieges against Israel, it got so bad that mothers began eating their children. That's a historical fact because of the starvation. And so they're trying to starve you out. They're trying to get water out. Nineveh, guess what? They had the Kosa River running right through town. They're not going to starve us out. They're not going to choke us out. We're always going to have water. But the flooding of the city, and this is what's so interesting. History tells us that the city was flooded. It was due probably to a combination of heavy rains and then a destruction of the floodgates used to control the flow of the Kosa River. Sennacherib, he, he actually dammed up the Kosa River outside the city, made a reservoir. The reason he did that was so that he could control water flow in and out of the city so that it would never flood in the city. And what we learn um, is that the, these massive river walls where he had set up this double dam, they found uh, original traces of these dam gates, the, the, the sluices as they're called. And that, those gates would control the water flow. Well, here's what we know about history is, uh, is that the actual enemies, the coalition of forces, somehow they gained control of those gates and they shut off the water. They shut off the water to the city and they let the reservoir build until a fevered pitch and they waited for the perfect time. Heavy rain was coming in, flooding, and they flipped open that gate and it just rushed into the city and flooded the city and had the effect of knocking down a gate which then allowed the armies to go into the city. This is how it all came to pass historically. And it's just a miraculous to read this in the book of Nahum. And so it, it had the effect of just undermining the, the northeast section of the wall defending the city. And this is what allowed, again, the enemies who had never been able to break through the walls at Nineveh. No one had ever been able to do it. This is what did it. It was a combination of God sending a heavy rain to flood and then this strategic way of shutting it off and then, all right, let's pull that sucker. And then it's just, the water went in and it, it was a gully washer as I've got it titled. It flooded the city. It destroyed the palace. We see the palace was uh, dissolved. Um, and so it could have been the place that Nahum saw. It could have been Ashurbanipal's palace that stood in the north part of Nineveh. The word is kind of generic, and there was probably multiple palaces. So we're, we don't want to be too dogmatic on what that was, but it could have been that. And so again, it brings us to verse 7, which we've been talking about in terms of the kingdom of God. And that's when God decrees something, it's a done deal. He, remember back in the book of Jonah, God had also given Jonah a message of destruction for Nineveh. But you remember what that message was? In 40 days, in 40 days, I'm going to destroy the city. So it gave them time to respond. That's the difference here. Time is up. There's no time for them to respond and avoid judgment. It's here. It's, it's been uh, marinating, let's say, for, for hundreds of years, at least 100 years since the time uh, of Jonah. And that's why in verse 7 we read, it is decreed. She shall be led away captive. Again, checking our pronouns. I think we're talking about the Ninevites here. She, the city, shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservant shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breast. 
So again, decreed means to make a proclamation. Who is this? I believe none other than God himself. Uh, through Nahum, he's pronouncing judgment on the city. The pronoun she, again, describes the nation of Assyria. It's described in multiple ways. She will be led away captive. And this is exactly what history tells us happened following the destruction of their capital city. They were taken into exile. Being brought up kind of reflects the same thing. It, it was te- there were survivors of the siege. Many Ninevites died in the siege. Uh, and I, f- I believe many soldiers were, were slaughtered, if not all, um, because of what, what they say third here. But anyways, they were, some survived the siege, some survived the destruction, and so they were taken into different countries as exiles. And then the third thing that we see there in verse 7 is they would be led by mourning maidservants. And what that tells us is this, that the slave girls would be the main primary social group left after the destruction of the city. In other words, most of the army, most of the men will have been killed, uh, as would any person of, of status. Now, one of the, the tragic things that we see uh, about history is when the king of Assyria realized that the gates had been compromised. Remember, that was the night that, uh, ironically, it was really bad timing on his part, but it was, I believe it was providential on God's part. He had actually fed his soldiers with, with incredible delicacies of food and also gave them wine to get drunk. And so all his soldiers were drunk when these gates bursted open and, and these, this coalition of armies came into the city. So probably not the best time to have a party. He didn't time that very well. But when he finally realized what was happening, um, history tells us that he uh, barricaded himself into one of his temples. He also barricaded all of his wives and all of his concubines and all of his children and all of the, the royalty in the nation, the, the eunuchs, the, uh, just everybody that had any kind of value and worth. He also took all of his gold and silver and barricaded it all. And he thought, you know what? I'm going to try to survive this thing by staying in here barricaded. Well, eventually he realized he wouldn't survive. And so the guy just flipped, flipped the match and set everybody on fire. And this is how that ended for them. And there's still traces of that temple being charred to this day. He burnt it from inside and the marauders burnt it from the outside. And so just a, just a tragic end, but it also shows that when God decrees something, if God is against you, it doesn't matter what you got going for you. In the case of Nineveh, they found that out very clearly. And so we're going to close it there and we're going to pick back up next week. Again, we're just going to keep reading this prophetic newspaper, you know, edition Edition two next week, we'll keep going and looking at the details. And just remember, the book that we're reading, this is recording events that happened some 40, 50 years into the future from the recording of the book. It's amazing, the detail. And so let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I'm just so encouraged this morning. It's this quick glimpse into your character, Lord. We, we always desire for evil people to be reckoned with by you. And Lord, we're reading about it, a a wicked, evil nation that was reckoned with by you. And yet at the same time, Lord, we look at the history. We look at how patient and long-suffering you were, even with this evil nation, the opportunities that you give. And so we're also reminded about your your patience and your love. And wow, Lord, you're, you're so you're so balanced and stable. It's just amazing to look at you and consider you in this way. And may we just be, as a result, just be more and more enamored with you as we go through our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.